Chapter Nine of Summer Days in Shakespeare Land by Charles G. Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. We now pass beneath the arches of the central tower, under the organ, and past the transepts into the chancel. The chief interest is, quite frankly, the Shakespeare monument and the graves of his family although even were it not for them the building itself and the curious carvings of the miserere seats would attract many a visitor it is with feelings of something at last accomplished some necessary pilgrimage made that the cultured traveller stands before the monument on the north wall and looks upon it and on the row of ledger stones on the floor but the sentiments of baconian monomaniacs are not at all reverent and respectful they come also but with hostile criticism I think they would like to tear down that monument, and I am quite sure they would desire nothing better than permission to open that grave and howk up whatever they found there. For to them, Shakespeare is the illiterate clown of Stratford, a very disreputable person, an impostor who could neither write nor act, and yet assumed the authorship of works by the greatest genius of the age, Francis Bacon. Twenty-four years ago, in his great cryptogram, Ignatius Donnelly exposed the fraud and unmasked Shakespeare. Someone at that time referred in conversation with one of Mr. Donnelly's ingenious countrymen to Shakespeare's bust. Yes, he is, rejoined that free and enlightened citizen. He is bust, and you won't mend him again. He referred to the alleged cryptogram said to be by Bacon, and purporting to be discovered in the first folio edition of the play Henry IV. It is amusing reading, this deciphered cipher, and if we were to believe it and Bacon to be its author, we should have no need to revise the old estimate of Bacon. The wisest, wittiest, meanest of mankind. We should, however, find it necessary to emphasize meanest because he is made to reveal himself as one who wrote treasonable plays, and, being afraid to admit their authorship, bribed Shakespeare in a heavy sum to take the risk and retire out of danger to Stratford-on-Avon. It is not a convincing tale, but it is printed with much elaboration, and Bacon is made to show an astonishingly intimate knowledge of Shakespeare's family and affairs. He uses very ungentlemanly, not to say unphilosophical, language, and leaves Shakespeare without a shred of character. He shows how suddenly this misbegotten rogue, this whoreson knave, this gore-bellied rascal, with the wagging paunch and the many loathsome diseases which have made him old before his time, leaves London, where he is in the midst of his fame as a dramatist, and retires to live upon his ill-gotten wealth as a country gentleman in his native town of Stratford-on-Avon. He was never an actor, and only succeeded in one part that of Falstaff, for which he was peculiarly suited because of his great greasy stomach, at which, and not at the excellence of his acting, people came to laugh. Thus says Bacon, always according to Mr. Ignatius Donnelly, in the bi-literal cipher he persuaded himself he found. Here we see Bacon the philosopher, in very angry, unphilosophic mood, as abusive as any fish-fag or sally slap-cabbage. And then this cuckoo, this strutting jay, who sets up to be a gentleman with a brand-new coat of arms, presently dies, untimely, at fifty-two years of age, just like your Shakespeare's. He must have had some good reason of his own for it, probably the better to do Bacon out of his due fame with posterity. But Bacon was not to be outwitted. 
he heard early in sixteen sixteen that shakespeare was in failing health and sent down on that three days journey from london to stratford-on-avon two of shakespeare's friends michael drayton and ben jonson who were in the secret of the authorship they were instructed to see that if shakespeare really insisted upon dying the secret should not be divulged at the time and shakespeare like the ungrateful wretch he was did die the diary of the rev john ward vicar of stratford-on-avon contains an entry in sixteen sixty two referring reminiscently to shakespeare's last days shakespeare drayton and ben jonson had a merry meeting and it seems drank too hard for shakespeare died of a fever there contracted donnelly suggests that drayton and jonson in bacon's interest duly saw shakespeare buried and so deeply that it would be for ever unlikely he should be exhumed and bacon's secret revealed he founds this upon a letter discovered in eighteen eighty four in the bodleian library oxford written in sixteen ninety four by one william hall of queen's college to a friend edward thwaites in which in the course of describing a visit to stratford-on-avon he states that shakespeare was buried full seventeen feet deep deep enough to secure him this recalls at once the reply of one of mr donnelly's irreverent countrymen before the tomb of nelson in st paul's cathedral the verger had pointed out that the admiral's body was enclosed in a leaden coffin and a wooden outer covering and then placed in a marble sarcophagus weighing ninety tons i guess you've got him exclaimed the contemplative stranger if he ever gets out of that cable me at my expense no doubt ben jonson and drayton guessed they had got shakespeare safe enough and to make doubly sure says donnelly they invented and had engraved the famous verse which appears on the gravestone involving blessings upon the man who spares these stones and curses upon he who moves the poet's bones the world has always thought shakespeare himself was the author of these lines the reason for them is found in the horror felt by shakespeare and reflected in hamlet at the disturbance of the remains of the dead in this time it was the custom to rifle the older graves in order to provide room for fresh burials and then to throw the bones from them into the vaulted charnel-house beneath the chancel this revolting irreverence which as a long-established custom at that time seemed a natural enough thing to the average person was horrific to one of shakespeare's exceptional sensibilities and he adopted not only this deep burial but also the curse upon the sacrilegious hand that should dare disturb his rest there is not the least room for objection to this story but the baconians know better there must have been some reason objects donnelly in italics there was the reason already shown but in dealing with a fellow like shakespeare you if you are a baconian have to go behind the obvious and the palpable and seek the absurd and improbable it does not appear what shakespeare's widow his daughters his sons-in-law and his executors were doing while drayton and ben jonson were thus having their own baconian way with shakespeare's body they according to this theory simply looked on which we might think an absurd thing to suppose except that nothing is too absurd for a baconian as we shall now see not only did drayton and jonson invent and get these verses engraved they also more amazing still inserted bacon's bi-literal cipher into them now it is to be remarked here that the deeply engraven lines upon which so many thousands of pilgrims gaze reverently are not in their present form 
so old as they appear to be, but were re-cut, and the lettering greatly modified, about 1831. Not one person in ten thousand of those who come to this spot is aware of the fact, and no illustration of the original lettering exists. But George Stevens, the Shakespearean scholar, wrote of it, about 1770, as an uncouth mixture of small and capital letters. He transcribed it, and so also in their turn did Knight and Malone. Some slight discrepancies exist between these transcriptions in the exact dispositions of the letters, but the actual inscription appears to have been as under good friend for jesus sake forbear to dig the dust enclosed here blessed be the man that spares these stones and cursed be him that moves my bones the hyphens between the words thee and these represent the old-time habit of engraving some of the letters conjoined as seen repeated in the existing inscription illustrated here in which the word blessed b l e s t e forms a prominent example in that word the letters s t e are in like manner conjoined leading very many of the not fully informed among the copyists of inscriptions to read it bless b l e s e hallowell phillips the foremost shakespearean authority of his age whom his arch-enemy the emphatic f j furnival delighted by the way to style hell-p thus refers to the recut inscription in his outlines of the life of shakespeare eighteen eighty one the honours of repose which have thus far been conceded to the poet's remains have not been extended to the tombstone the latter had by the middle of the last century that is about seventeen fifty sunk below the level of the floor and about fifty years ago circa eighteen thirty one had become so much decayed as to suggest a vandalic order for its removal, and in its stead to place a new slab, one which marks certainly the locality of Shakespeare's grave, and continues the record of the farewell lines, but indicates nothing more. The original memorial has wandered from its allotted station no man can tell whither, a sacrifice to the insane worship of prosaic neatness, that mischievous demon whose votaries have practically destroyed so many of the priceless relics of ancient england and her gifted sons the cipher which donnelly the resourceful sleuth-hound pretends he has found in the older inscription is destroyed by the rearrangement in the new it was not he says the sheer illiteracy of the local mason who cut the original letters that accounts for the eccentric appearance of capitals where they have no business to be for the hyphen which so oddly divides the word enclosed e n c l o hyphen capital a s e d for the full stops in capital h e period capital r lowercase e or for the curious choice that writes jesus capital i e s v s in small letters and sake in large capitals no it was the necessities of the cipher which accounted for this weird derangement of epitaphs and donnelly proceeds to emulate the conjurer who produces unexpected things from empty hats and he finally arrives at this startling revelation francis bacon wrote the green marlowe and shakespeare plays as mark twain another baconian says bacon was a born worker yes indeed but he understates it if we were to believe this revelation to have done all this he would need to have been a syndicate end of chapter nine